Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 43. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We're in the process of examining competing hypotheses to explain the facts of Jesus' empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' faith. Up to this point, all of the hypotheses that we've examined are defunct hypotheses. That is to say, they are not defended by modern scholars. But today we come to an alternative hypothesis to the resurrection hypothesis, which is currently defended by some scholars, and that is the myth or legend hypothesis. You'll remember that uh, David Strauss effectively buried the old conspiracy hypothesis and the apparent death hypothesis in his book on the life of Jesus in 1835. Strauss correctly saw that neither the uh, conspiracy theory of Reimarus nor the apparent death theory of Heinrich Paulus was a plausible explanation of the facts of the case. And therefore, Strauss sought a third alternative in the mythological explanation. According to this theory, the miraculous events of the Gospels never happened. Rather, the Gospel accounts of them are the result of a long process of the accumulation of legend and religious imagination. This is what Strauss wrote. In the view of the church, Jesus was miraculously revived. According to the deistic view of Reimarus, his corpse was stolen by the disciples. In the rationalistic view, he only appeared to be dead and revived. According to our view, the imagination of his followers, aroused in their deepest spirit, presented their master, revived, for they could not possibly think of him as dead. What for a long time was valid as an external fact, first miraculous, then deceptive, finally simply natural, is hereby reduced completely to the state of the mind and made into an internal event. Strauss thus denied that there was any external fact to be explained. The gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus were unreliable legends which have been overlaid by myth. So Strauss's hypothesis is, in effect, a denial of the fact of the empty tomb. It is an appeal to the hallucination hypothesis to explain the postmortem appearances. And finally, it's an appeal to myth and legend in order to explain the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. Now, we've already come to see how contemporary scholarship uh, disagrees with Strauss concerning the historicity of the empty tomb. The empty tomb is today widely recognized as a fact belonging to the historical Jesus. 
We'll say something later about the hallucination hypothesis as an explanation of the post-mortem appearances. So let's hold off on that until we come to that hypothesis. For now, what I'd like to focus on is Strauss's attempt to explain the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. According to Strauss, contemporary, or rather contrary to Strauss, contemporary scholars have come to the conclusion that Jesus' resurrection um, was not, in fact, a later development, but rather was the belief of the earliest disciples themselves. The belief that Jesus was risen from the dead is the primitive belief of the earliest Christian disciples, not a later product of religious imagination or legend. You remember the conclusion by R. H. Fuller that I quoted a couple of lessons ago when he says that even the most skeptical critic has to posit some mysterious X to get the movement going. And if you deny that Jesus' resurrection was itself that X, then you've got to hold that the disciples came sincerely to believe in Jesus' resurrection either because of the influence of Christian uh, uh, theology upon them, or the influence of pagan religions, or the influence of Jewish religious beliefs. Let's examine each of those alternatives. First, obviously the earliest disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection cannot be due to Christian influences for the simple reason that there wasn't any Christianity yet. Because the belief in Jesus' resurrection from the dead lay at the very foundation of the early Christian movement, it cannot be explained as the later product and retrojection of that movement. Without this belief, the movement would never have come into being in the first place. So what about pagan influences? Can the belief in Jesus' resurrection on the part of the earliest disciples be explained as the result of the influence of pagan mythology upon them? Well, back around the turn of the 19th to the 20th centuries, scholars in comparative religion ransacked the literature of ancient mythology in an attempt to find parallels to Christian beliefs in pagan religions, including parallels to the belief in Jesus' resurrection. And some even sought to show that these Christian beliefs are the result of these pagan influences. This movement, however, soon collapsed, principally due to two factors. First of all, scholars came to realize that the supposed parallels were spurious. That is to say, they were not truly parallel to belief in the resurrection. The ancient world was a virtual cornucopia of gods and heroes, and comparative studies in religion and literature require tremendous sensitivity to the similarities and differences in these beliefs, or otherwise distortion and confusion will inevitably result. And unfortunately, those who uncritically adduced parallels to 
belief in Jesus' resurrection failed to exercise that sort of sensitivity. Many of the alleged parallels are actually not about resurrection at all. For example, some of them are really apotheosis stories. That is to say, they're stories about the assumption of the person into heaven, his divinization, how he becomes a god. For example, the stories of Hercules and Romulus would be instances of that. Others would be disappearance stories, where the hero vanishes and is assumed into some higher sphere. Examples of this would be Apollonius of Tyana and Empedocles. Still other stories were simply seasonal symbols of the crop cycle. As the vegetation dies during the dry season, and then it comes back to life in the rainy season. Examples of these uh, seasonal symbols would be myths about Osiris, Tammuz, and Adonis. Finally, still others are political expression of emperor worship. For example, the cult of Julius Caesar or Caesar Augustus, who were regarded as gods. None of these is parallel to the Jewish idea of resurrection of the dead. David Aun, who is a, an expert in uh, comparative ancient literature, has said, and I quote, that no parallel to them, that is the resurrection traditions, no parallel to them is found in Greco-Roman biography. Indeed, most scholars have actually come to doubt whether there really were any myths of dying and rising gods in the ancient world. For example, in the Osiris myth, which is one of the most important of the seasonal symbols, Osiris doesn't really come back to life at all. He just continues to exist in the nether realm of the dead where he reigns. In a recent review of the evidence, the Scandinavian scholar T.N.D. Mettinger reports, and I quote, from the 1930s, a consensus has developed to the effect that the dying and rising gods died but did not return or rise to live again. Those who still think differently are looked upon as residual members of an almost extinct species." Uh, end quote. Now, Mettinger himself defends the minority view that myths of dying and rising gods did exist in three cases that he mentions, Dumuzi, Baal, and Melkart. Uh, he thinks these are myths of dying and rising gods. But he recognizes that such seasonal symbols are quite unlike the Christian belief in Jesus' resurrection. This is what he says. The dying and rising gods were closely related to the seasonal cycle. Their death and return were seen as reflected in the changes of plant life. The death and resurrection of Jesus is a one-time event, not repeated and unrelated to seasonal changes. There is, as far as I am aware, no prima facie evidence that the death and resurrection of Jesus 
is a mythological construct drawing on the myths and rites of the dying and rising gods of the surrounding world. While studied with profit against the background of Jewish resurrection belief, the faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus retains its unique character in the history of religions. The riddle remains." End quote. Now, notice Mettinger's comment that belief in Jesus' resurrection may be profitably studied against the background of Jewish resurrection beliefs, not against the background of pagan mythology. And in this remark, we see one of the major shifts in New Testament scholarship that has occurred over the last century. This shift has been described as the Jewish reclamation of Jesus. The Jewish reclamation of Jesus. Scholars came to realize that pagan mythology is simply the wrong interpretive context for understanding Jesus of Nazareth. Craig Evans, a fine historical Jesus scholar, has called this shift the eclipse of mythology in life of Jesus research. Jesus and his disciples were first century Judean Jews, and it's against that background that they must be understood. The spuriousness of these alleged parallels is just one indication that pagan mythology is the wrong interpretive context for understanding the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. So that's the first reason this movement collapsed at the uh, dawn of the 20th century. The parallels turned out to be spurious. Secondly, there is no causal connection between the pagan myths and the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. In any case, there's no causal connection between the two. Jews were familiar with these seasonal deities. You actually find them mentioned in Ezekiel 8.14, where it refers to the uh, beliefs of Tammuz. And they found them abhorrent and blasphemous. And therefore, as the uh, German scholar Gerhard Kittel notes, there is no trace of myths of dying and rising gods uh, anywhere in Palestine during the first century. Not a trace of the myths of dying and rising gods in first century Palestine. I think that the uh, German scholar Hans Grass uh, certainly does not exaggerate when Grass says that it would be, and I quote, completely unthinkable that the original disciples would sincerely have come to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead because they had heard about pagan myths of dying and rising seasonal deities. Any question about the attempt to explain the origin of the Christian belief through pagan influences? Yes, Brad. The um, no causal connection. You mean that there's... it. it can you explain that? What I mean is that there's no indication that these 
pagan myths had any influence upon the first disciples. Um, as I said from Kittel, these cults of, or, or worship of these kind of deities apparently didn't even exist in first century Palestine. So there was no influence, even if, the, even if these myths did exist, which apparently they didn't. Thank you for the question. Yes, David. You've mentioned N.T. Wright before, but not here. Uh, he set out to do a rather exhaustive uh, listing of all of these ancient uh, myths and, and pagan gods in his, his book on the resurrection. Is that uh, relevant here? Yes, it is. As I explained, when I began to talk about this third leg of the stool, namely the very origin of the disciples' belief in the resurrection. N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, is the fullest, most thorough development of that argument. Uh, Wright argues that the very origin of the disciples' belief cannot be explained through pagan influences or through Jewish influences, uh, and therefore requires the historicity of the empty tomb and the post-mortem appearances. And his book, if you're interested, is a treasure trove of citations of the relevant literature. He doesn't just give the footnotes to it, he actually gives the citations. So it's like a, a library of ancient sources concerning the resurrection in pagan and Jewish thought. And so it's very, very helpful for anyone who wants to look at the original sources and see what they say. I'll say something more about Wright in a moment. Yes, Garrett. Uh, so something that I'm kind of interested in is how, you know, you said that the idea of this comparative religions with uh, these pagan gods sort of ended around the beginning of the early 20th century. Yes. Um, but you, uh, there, are, there is still a huge influence of people like Frazier and Joseph Campbell and all those people in anthropology and comparative religious studies and all that kind of stuff. Um, if that ended in the early 20th century, why is there still this continued influence of these kind of concepts in a lot of other scholarly fields? Yeah, I can't speak to that in these other fields like anthropology or sociology. I know simply in New Testament studies or historical Jesus studies, there has occurred this eclipse of mythology, which says that they're not relevant, particularly to the resurrection with respect to these dying and rising gods. Um, so I, I, I can't answer the, the question with respect to the fields that you mentioned. Right. It's too bad they didn't notice that uh, <laughs> the, the scholarship had already uh, squashed those ideas, but I just see this come up all the time in people that study those other fields. Is that right? I mean, yeah. I'm aware that this is widespread on the internet, yeah. but I've tended to just dismiss that as being due to ignorance of contemporary historical Jesus scholarship, but it would be interesting to know what you just said, that perhaps in some other fields, like anthropology, that um, perhaps some of these errors persist. Right. Well, let's then look at Jewish influences. The real question then among contemporary scholars is whether the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection could have been the product of Jewish influences on them. 
Again, the answer would seem to be negative. Now, to understand this, we need to understand more fully what the Jewish conception of resurrection was. The belief in the resurrection of the dead is explicitly mentioned three times in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah 26, 19, Ezekiel chapter 37, and Daniel 12, 2. Those are the three places belief in the resurrection of the dead is mentioned in the Old Testament. During the intertestamental period, the belief in the resurrection of the dead became a widespread hope. And in Jesus' day, this belief was held to by the party of the Pharisees, although it was denied by the party of the Sadducees. So there was not unanimity on this belief, uh, but it was a common Jewish belief. The belief in the resurrection of the dead was in itself nothing new, but was a, an accepted Jewish belief. But the Jewish conception of resurrection from the dead differed in at least two fundamental respects from the resurrection of Jesus. First, in Jewish thought, the resurrection of the dead always occurs after the end of the world. Joachim Jeremias, a very prominent German um, New Testament scholar, has written the following. Ancient Judaism did not know of an anticipated resurrection as an event of history. Nowhere does one find in the literature anything comparable to the resurrection of Jesus. Certainly, resurrections of the dead were known, but these always concerned resuscitations, the return to the earthly life. In no place in the late Judaic literature does it concern a resurrection to glory as an event of history. For a Jew, the resurrection always occurred after the end of human history. He had no conception of a resurrection that would take place within history. It's interesting that we find this typical Jewish attitude in the Gospels themselves. For example, John 11, 23 to 24. John 11, 23 to 24. Here, Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he tells his sister Martha, your brother shall rise again. And what does Martha say? Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She had no inkling of a resurrection within history. She thought that Jesus was talking about the resurrection at the end of the world. And I think it's for this same reason that the disciples had so much difficulty understanding Jesus' predictions of his own resurrection. They thought he was talking about the resurrection at the end of the world. Look, for example, at Mark 9, 9 to 11. Mark 9, 9 to 11. I'll read it to you. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. And they began questioning him, saying, 
Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now here Jesus predicts his resurrection. And what did the disciples ask? Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? In first century Judaism, it was widely believed that the prophet Elijah would come again before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of judgment, when the dead would be raised and judged. So the disciples couldn't understand the idea of a resurrection occurring within human history prior to the end of the world. And so Jesus' predictions only confused them. So given the Jewish conception of the resurrection of the dead, after Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples would not have come to believe that he was already risen from the dead. Rather, they would have looked forward to the resurrection at the end of history and probably in keeping with Jewish custom, uh, preserved his tomb as a shrine where his bones could rest until the resurrection at the final day. Second point, in Jewish thought, the resurrection of the dead was always the resurrection of all the people or of all the righteous dead. They had no conception of the resurrection of an isolated individual apart from the people. Again, the uh, German scholar Ulrich Wilkins makes this point. Wilkins says, Nowhere do the Jewish texts speak of the resurrection of an individual which already occurs before the resurrection of the righteous in the end time and is differentiated and separate from it. Nowhere does the participation of the righteous in the salvation at the end time depend on their belonging to the Messiah who was raised in advance as, quote, the first of those raised by God, end quote. That from 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Wilkins' observation that no connection existed between an individual believer's resurrection and the prior resurrection of the Messiah is an understatement. There existed no belief in the Messiah's resurrection at all. Um, that's why we find no examples of other messianic movements at that time uh, comparable to Christianity's belief in Jesus' resurrection. And this is a, a point that N.T. Wright has been insistent upon. Wright says, all the followers of those first century messianic movements were fanatically committed to the cause. But in no case, right across the century before Jesus and the century after him, do we hear of any Jewish group saying that their executed leader had been raised from the dead and he really was the Messiah after all, end quote. Wright invites us to suppose that the disciples were convinced on other grounds that Jesus was the Messiah. Say he had made claims to this effect, and so they were convinced he was the Messiah. Wright says this would not have led the early disciples to say he had been raised from the dead. A change in the meaning of Messiah, yes, since nobody in the first century supposed the Messiah would die at the hands of pagans but not an assertion of his resurrection. No Second Temple Jewish texts speak of the Messiah 
being raised from the dead. Nobody would have thought of saying, I believe that so-and-so really was the Messiah, therefore he must have been raised from the dead, end quote. So the disciples had no idea of the resurrection of an isolated individual apart from the people, especially the resurrection of the Messiah. And so following Jesus' crucifixion, again, all they could have done was to wait with longing for the general resurrection of the dead in order to be reunited with their master again in glory. So for these two reasons, we can't explain plausibly the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection as a result of Jewish influences. Left to themselves, the disciples would not have come to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. C.F.D. Mole, uh, who is a late New Testament scholar from the University of Cambridge, makes the point forcefully. Mole writes, if the coming into existence of the Nazarenes, a phenomenon undeniably attested by the New Testament, rips a great hole in history, a hole the size and shape of the resurrection, what does the secular historian propose to stop it up with? The birth and rapid rise of the Christian church remain an unsolved enigma for any historian who refuses to take seriously the only explanation offered by the church itself." End quote. Any comment or question about the origin of the disciples' belief uh, as a result of Jewish influences? Okay, Tiwan. Yes, Dr. Craig, um, the Mark passage, Jesus did affirm the resurrection and not at the end day, and it has already happened that Elijah um, actually has already come and I guess John the Baptist uh, is carrying Right. Jesus seems to think that John the Baptist plays the role of Elijah, and so he does precede the resurrection. But you can imagine how confusing that would be to these first century Jewish disciples. So the disciples would not have expected one person to be resurrected before the general resurrection, but would they have been that shocked for Jesus to have been resuscitated like, like Lazarus? Yeah, that's a real good point. No, I, I don't think belief in his resuscitation would have been um, contrary to Jewish beliefs. In fact, Jeremias makes that point. Resuscitations were known, the return to the earthly life. And Jesus himself is said to have revived people. I prefer the word revivification to resuscitation, because when I think of a resuscitation, I think the person's not really dead. He, he's just been brought back again to consciousness. But a revivification, made alive again, a return to the earthly life, that would be within Jewish expectations or permissible. But that makes it all the more striking that that's not what the early Christian movement affirmed about Jesus. They affirmed his resurrection to glory, uh, such as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, not his mere resuscitation like Lazarus. So when the apostles came to believe in the resurrection and they quote Old Testament 
psalms and, yes. and perhaps typology and such. Would you just say that is, was obscure and they didn't see that beforehand? Or how would you explain that? That's exactly right. It used to be thought that one of the things that fueled their belief in the resurrection was these Old Testament passages which prompted them to believe Jesus was risen from the dead. Um, that suggestion tended to be made more implausible by the demonstration that in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5, you have a formula that goes back to within the first five years after the crucifixion that shows the resurrection to be so early, so primitive of a belief, that there doesn't seem to have been the sort of time for that kind of theological reflection to take place. But even more importantly than that, as a point I made in response to Dr. Bob the other day uh, with regard to Isaiah 53, namely, these passages in the Old Testament are so obscure that you would never read them as resurrection from the dead unless you were looking at them through Christian lenses and reading the resurrection back into them. A great example is Psalm 1610 where David says you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And in his sermon uh, in the book of Acts, Peter says this is the prediction of the resurrection that his body would not see corruption and be risen from the dead. But in the original context, what David is talking about is he won't allow his righteous one to die, that God's going to protect the king, and he won't allow him to experience death, which is quite different. So um, these passages, I think, can be read through Christian lenses after you've come to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, but they aren't clear enough to have prompted the belief in the resurrection of the dead, especially given these two hallmarks of Jewish resurrection belief that would preclude it. Good question. Thank you. I think we have time for one more. Yes, Bruce. If they were waiting for the end time for the resurrection, then to Taiwan's point, you would see this in, in John the Baptist, because he said the kingdom is at hand, and you're being baptized for for something new, you're, you're accepting a new uh, uh, understanding of the Old Testament and, and the laws and so forth. So, he would Yes, this raises the whole question of the delay of Christ's return and the establishment of the kingdom. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples are still hoping for the establishment of the kingdom in their lifetime. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? And uh, Jesus says, you don't know the times and the seasons when this is going to happen. So it may have been that some of them at least anticipated that this would happen within their lifetimes. But remember, that had to happen. The, the end of the world had to come about first, and then the dead would be raised. So you can just imagine putting yourself back into the shoes of these first century Jewish believers, how confusing this all would have been because of the changes it involved in Jews, Jewish eschatological expectations. All right, up to this point, what I've assumed is that the disciples were just sort of left on their own following the crucifixion. And I've argued that neither as a result of Christian, pagan, or Jewish influences would they have come to sincerely believe 
God had raised Jesus from the dead. But suppose they weren't just left on their own. Suppose somehow they discovered that the tomb was empty. We don't know how. We'll just say somehow the tomb was empty. And that that caused them to hallucinate visions of Jesus. Would that have led them then to proclaim God has raised him from the dead? That will be the question we'll take up next Sunday when we meet again. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the glorious theme that we've been able to talk about today uh, and for the hope of the resurrection of the dead that we share. We thank you for ratifying and confirming this hope so palpably in the resurrection of Jesus. And we pray that this would give us confidence and inspire us to bold and uh, faithful witness throughout this coming week. In his name we pray. Amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.